This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. Good morning, ABC. Um, I think the real reason that Phil is here today um, is because a photo was shown of him last week that wasn't terribly complimentary. And, you know... He's got a hard, tough exterior, but really inside he's got a very soft, gooey core. And I think probably, you know, that's why he's not here today. And, and that aspect of his character was brought out many years ago uh, to myself when we were up in uh, Brynamon and we had uh, an all-men's breakfast. And while I was eating my uh, egg and bacon, Phil began to talk about his childhood and how during lambing season um, his father Davy would take one of these beautiful little newly born pristine lambs and place it in his arms and telling that you know the purity and the beauty and the innocence of that lamb was just like Jesus. And as he was doing this, the tears were welling up in Phil's eyes. And I just had to add at that precise moment that, you know, when I go walking on Black Mountain in the spring, I'm surrounded by gambling lambs. And the only thing I'm thinking of is, I really need to buy a bigger freezer. So... <laughs> The next time you see Phil, give him a, a little hug, okay? And in fact, maybe give him a peck on the cheek as well, because it says in the word of God, greet one another with a holy kiss. So men of the church, don't be ashamed to kiss your pastor, okay? I'm sure he'd appreciate it. I'm not your pastor, and I can assure you, if you try to kiss me, you will never walk again, okay? <laughs> um, just while we're on the issues of photos, um, I think just to the media team, really. You know, every week before the next person speaks, uh, we need to show a photo that respects the honor and the dignity of the preacher. So in future, I'd like the following photo to be shown of myself, if that's at all possible. If it's available. There we are. Okay. (laughs) Because I am the king of dragons, the rightful ruler of Westeros, and the ruler of the seven kingdoms. Okay? My middle name is Respect. Or it would be if it wasn't Judah. Okay, then. Enough of this nonsense. Let's get on to the Word of God. And it's always good when the Word of God that you're preaching from has been confirmed already by somebody who quoted it. So this is Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. And I'm reading in the slightly modified Morgan version of the King James Version. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our troubles. For when we do not know what we should pray, the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for us according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good for those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, those who he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, then who can be against us? He that did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not freely give us all things? Could anyone accuse those whom God has chosen? When God acquits somebody, could anyone else condemn? Could Jesus Christ... No. He not only died for us, he also rose from the dead and now sits on the right hand of God, pleading our cause. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, 
For your sake we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is manifest in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This morning's topic is prayer. Prayer is the supreme spiritual practice. Everybody prays. We've been praying from the beginning. We prayed to a higher power before we knew how to read and write. Every religion on earth is based around prayer. Even atheists pray. During those brief moments between their car going off the cliff and them hitting the rocks down below. So it's sad when Christians stop praying. Because when they stop praying, they stop being spiritual. And you can tell the spiritual people in a church. It's quite easy. Call a curry night. Church of our size, you might get 30 people going. Call a prayer meeting, you might get 20 going. Do you know what? I've got good news for you. You can go to both. As long as they're not on the same time, you can go to both. But what can we say of a Christian who never goes to a curry night? They don't like curry. It's quite simple. And what can you say of a Christian that never goes to a prayer meeting? It's simple. They don't like Jesus. This is not rocket science. We're not talking about working out gravitational waves in quantum theory. This is really, really simple. What did Jesus Christ say in Matthew chapter 21, verse 31? My house will be called the house of Tandori? No, my house will be called the house of prayer. If we stop doing everything we do, give up the Sunday service, the midweek meeting, outreach, um, the food bank, you name it, but we keep a prayer meeting, we're still a church. Do everything excellently and avoid a prayer meeting and we cease being part of the body of Christ. And the reason why people often don't like prayer is because they find it boring. But it's meant to be. That's the whole point. Prayer is when you lower the noise to signal ratio so you can hear the voice of God. Okay? And we live in an age where we expect to be excited all the time. And prayer is not about that. Sometimes, guess what? People pray to the wrong person. Sometimes they pray in the wrong way. Sometimes they pray for the wrong things and so so don't get their prayers answered. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that you should pray to the Virgin Mary and to the saints. And I don't know why they're saying that. They're just making that up. That's not in the book. I saw a broadcast on EWTN, the Roman Catholic uh, Satellite Network, in which they said the reason why you should pray to the Virgin Mary is because what Jewish son could be disobedient to his Jewish mother? And I thought to myself, you people are idiots. They call Mary the Queen of Heaven, but she's not. She's blessed, and I'm sure she's in heaven, but she don't hear your prayers. And as for praying to saints, they said, wouldn't you pray to one of your friends if you're in need? And that's absolutely true. I would ask one of my friends to pray for me. If I was in need, but there's one condition under which I wouldn't ask them to pray for me. And that is, if they were dead, I wouldn't do it. For a couple of reasons. One, because they're dead, that seems quite significant. Secondly, I don't know where they are. Are they in heaven? Are they in Sheol? Are they in the other place? And even if they're in heaven, do they hear me? Will God listen to them if they ask a request on my behalf? God might be willing to give me that Ferrari, but when my friend Jeff, who is dead, asks him for it, God might say, I wanted to, but I really don't like you, so I'm not going to do it. You've got to pray to the right people and in the right way. 
And you know what? We're as bad as the Catholics because we make the assumption. We think that because God loves us and that therefore God will answer our prayers and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, think of yourselves now if you've got kids. If at the end of this meeting your bairn asks you for a PS4, what are you going to do? Well, it depends, first of all, how the kid asks you. If the kid says, Dad, get down Argus, get me a PS4 now. What are you going to do? You're going to say something like, don't you dare speak to me like that. But if he asks you nicely, if the child could give you a good reason, do you know what? You might say to yourself, I will. Maybe not now. Maybe on a birthday. Maybe at Christmas. But you will want to do it. Because parents love to bless their kids. The greatest joy in life for a parent is to be able to buy things and give things to their children. And God is exactly the same. He wants to give us stuff. But we've got to approach him in the right way and we've got to show respect. And we've got to give a good reason why he should give us things. There are two parts to this morning's sermon. first part, we're going to look at public prayer and then we're going to look at personal prayer. Okay? And they seem like the same, but actually they're as different as rugby and football. They're both sports, but actually there are different rules governing both. And the key thing to understand with prayer is this. It don't work unless you've got faith. Okay? And faith is the key. And the weird thing is a lot of Christians don't understand faith. And I find that odd because we're surrounded by faith. Faith makes the modern world work. If you've got pound notes in your pocket, you know that's not real money. Those are IOUs. But go to a bank with a £20 note and they'll give you £20 coins. That's real money. Look at the gyrations in the stock market over the last week. Faith changing. People wondering about the future. Think of Apple shares. Back in 1997, they were $7 each. Two years ago, they were $500 each. What happened? In 97, people didn't have faith in the company. Two years ago, they had perhaps too much faith in the company. Faith changes how people behave and how people act. You get a bank loan. You get a loan from a building society. They're saying that they have faith in you, in your ability to repay that money. When you take a medicine, fly in a plane, watch the news, you're putting faith in people who are telling you and offering you things. And for us, without faith, there can be no salvation. Through faith, God draws people to him, and an absence of faith causes people to reject him. However, faith, as I've said, is poorly understood in churches. You see, there's a difference between belief and faith. Belief is an idea that you hold, and faith is an action that supports that belief. So let's say in the unlikely event, um, I invented a bulletproof vest. And I believed that that bulletproof vest would stop a Pont 5 Magnum round fired from a Desert Eagle handgun. And to prove my faith in that product, I would get my assistant to fire a bullet at that bulletproof vest while it's being worn by Phil Morgan. Now, you would be saying at that point, well, obviously he doesn't have any faith in that product, does he? Look, because he's putting it on his pasta. But if I wore it and I got somebody to shoot me, People would say, wow, that Ian Morgan. He really believed in that product. He really had faith in it. It's amazing, isn't it? Are you going to the funeral? And that illustrates something. Sometimes faith can be misplaced. You can put faith in something or someone, and they can let you down. Faith is not a feeling. You cannot build faith or feel faith in a meeting. Faith has no existence outside of the action that embodies it. James, in his letter, encapsulates it so well, where he actually says, faith without works is death. But faith can be seen in action. When the centurion came to Jesus 
and asked Jesus to heal his servant. He said, I'm a man under authority. And if I say to one man, come, he comes, and another man, go. And so I know you can heal my servant. The act of going to Jesus was an act of faith. And Jesus said, never have I seen such faith in all of Israel. Scripture says, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, For faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And there is such a thing as the gift of faith, the ability to make other people act in a way that embodies faith. I mean, you think of King Leonidas of the Spartans. Every time I preach now, I'm going to mention the Spartans, okay? He had faith, not in himself or in his army, but he believed that Greece could overthrow the Persians who were invading their country. And to prove that, he went out and he laid down his life. Churchill, 1940, had faith that the British people could defeat the Nazis. And he gave that amazing speech, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them in the hills. And guess what? If he jumped on a plane and then flown to America, people would say, what a charlatan. But he didn't, he stayed. The act of staying reinforced his words. That was an act of faith on his behalf. And he gave faith to the British people to fight that war. In English, faith is an abstract noun. But in the Bible, it's actually a verb. It's a doing word. Faith is an action in obedience to a belief. And the key thing for this morning's preach is this. Prayer is an act of faith. Because when you pray to Jesus, you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. I've been in prayer meetings where people have said, I've got a prayer request, but it's confidential, so I can't tell you. What can I do with that? I can't pray for someone who I don't know. I can't pray for something that I don't know. But there's an assumption underlying that request, and it's this. God knows, God cares, therefore God will act. And the first two are right. God knows, God cares, and the last bit is wrong. Okay? You're making an assumption about him. We don't like having assumptions made about us, do we? We don't like being taken for granted. Uh, let's say next Saturday... Uh, Iwin and Sally can't clean the church. Why? Because they've been out clubbing and they're wasted. (laughs) They are seriously wasted. So instead, the the church says, oh, Ian will do it. What? Yeah, Ian will do it. Oh, you'll do it. Oh, yeah, you'll do it. What? You're you're taking me for granted? We take offense, don't we, when we're just taken for granted. How do you think God feels, the supreme being, when we just make an assumption about him? Don't assume that because he knows and he loves and he cares that he will act. God knew the Holocaust was coming. He saw it happening. He cared, not just because six million people were being murdered, but because they are his chosen people, that's in the Old and in the New Testament. And yet he did nothing. If he did anything, it was probably through a covenant-keeping people, the British, who, having declared war on Adolf Hitler, found out that they'd bitten off more than they could chew and had a day of prayer. And lo and behold, things began to work badly for the Nazis from that point on. The Nazis had intended to kill 11 million Jews. They ended up killing six. The Holocaust was cut short. Why? Because God can only operate within the confines of covenant. That's his choice. That is his choice to work with us. And that is how prayer works. The old covenant was given by Moses to the Jewish people. And it's prophesied in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 10 to 14, when the old covenant will come to an end. Says there in Zechariah, when 20 pieces of silver are thrown into the treasury, thus valuing my life so cheaply, then the covenant will come to an end. The old covenant was meant to stop 
at that point. But guess what? The new covenant was intended for the Jewish people. It says it so clearly in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And those Jews who embraced the new covenant, guess what? They came under the protection of the new covenant. And we were added in as well. But those people, those Jews who clung to the old covenant, do you know what? They were no longer protected by God. And it always makes me laugh when people say that God will always protect the Jews. I cannot think of a more pogromed, more ghettoized, more murdered, more put-upon people in human history than the Jews. 2,000 years ago, there were 2 million of them. Today, there's 11 million. That's not thriving. That's surviving. 2,000 years ago, there were 2 million Britons. Today, there's what? 350 million Britons across the world? English is the language of the planet. Capitalism, which we invented, is the global economic system. Democracy is the global political system, which we rediscovered, okay? We made the world in our image, but it could have been the Jews that did that if they'd embraced the new covenant. Covenant is a legal agreement imposed on both parties, and all legal disputes and requests are dealt with in court. So you have to understand court procedure in order to get your prayers answered. And you know what? Whether you've got Crown Court, Magistrates Court, Civil Court, Family Court, Small Claims Court, whatever the court is, the term court comes from the court of the king. Because in the old days, it was the king who settled disputes. You see Solomon doing it in the Bible. King John was the last king in Britain who traveled with his court around country, giving judicial judgments upon people. So you have to understand that when you have a prayer meeting, what you're actually doing is entering into the court of the king. And that's where you solve legal disputes with your father. And I've been a court officer in about 15 different courts across Wales. And I tell you this now, you have to show the court respect. And if you don't, my goodness, are you in trouble. Even the language we use, you know, the law lords are referred to as your lordship. It's a biblical term. The judge in a crown court is referred to as your honour. The magistrate in the magistrate's court is referred to as your worship. When you enter a court for the first time, what do you do? You bow your head. Up until 20 years ago, when women entered court as court officers, they had to have a hat on or a beret. And it is always hysterical in those moments as a court officer. Because I tell you this now, working in court is the most boring thing you could ever imagine. It ain't like Crown Court or anything you've seen on TV. You're sitting there doing nothing most of the time. But the mood is lightened when some idiot comes in inappropriately dressed. And then you see the barrister's smirk. And you see the clerk let his glasses drop to the end of his nose. And everybody looks, normally at some poor, unfortunate social worker who has come in looking like a 1970s open university polytechnic lecturer. And he's not wearing a tie. And everything stops. And if you can't imagine what a 1970s polytechnic lecturer looks like, just imagine Jeremy Corbyn, okay? That kind of mixture of untidiness and incomprehension. And everybody waits for the judge to pass a comment. Things like, get that thing out of my court. Who do you think you are coming here dressed like this? Can you not afford a tie? Or he might just say to the court officers, please remove him and we'll adjourn until the next session. I tell you what, if you don't respect the judge, you end up with trouble. And the good thing about the prayer meeting, okay? You're entering into the court of kings, of our Lord. But... The quorum for actually having a court is very low. 
Jesus Christ said, Matthew chapter 18, verse 19 to 20, If two of you on earth agree to ask for anything, it will be granted to you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be in the midst of them. He's talking about the Jewish court. When you went to a Jewish court, you couldn't go alone as a plaintiff. You had to have somebody as a witness to back you up. And it's interesting, Jesus even applies that legal term to himself. John chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, he says this, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he gives of me is true. So guess what? A husband and wife at home deciding to have a prayer meeting. They've constituted a court. Jesus is there. The role of Jesus in the court is interesting. He is the chief advocate. He sits on the right-hand side of the judge, and he is the one who makes the request of the judge and gives advice to the judge. The judge is the father. We have been given the Holy Spirit. The term that's used in the Bible for the Holy Spirit is counselor. We've lost that legal term in Britain, but in America they still call lawyers counselors. So the role of the counselor is to give you the words to speak that you might not otherwise know what to say. Things are looking good. The judge is your dad. The advocate of the judge is your brother. You have your own barrister to advise you what to say. There's one fly in the ointment. There's also somebody in court who will try and deny your requests. And the Greek word for a person who accuses is devil. So yes, the devil is allowed to attend prayer meetings to stop us getting our way, but he doesn't have much status in the court, so you don't have to worry about him too much. That is the key to understanding prayer. You're entering into the heavenly court of God. It is the heavenly court of justice. And that's why 25 times in the New Testament, it's said that Jesus sits on the right-hand side of God. What does it say in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 18 to 22? For who among them has stood in the court of Yahweh to hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened? But if they had stood in my court, they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil ways. Jesus chooses to use the image of the court when he's describing prayer. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8 says this. Then Jesus taught his followers that they should always pray and never lose hope. He used this story to teach them. There was a judge in a town. He did not love God and he did not care what people thought about him. In that town there was a woman whose husband had died. She came many times to the judge and said, There is a man who has done me wrong. Give me justice. But the judge did not want to help the woman. After a long time he thought to himself, I don't care about God and I don't care what people think, but this woman is bugging me. If I give her what she wants, then she'll leave me alone. But if I don't give her what she wants, she will bother me until I'm sick. Jesus said, listen, there's meaning in what the judge said. If God's people pray to him night and day, he will always give them what is right. But he will not be slow to answer them. I tell you, God will help his people quickly. But when the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith on earth? I find it interesting that very seminal statement about will I find faith on earth when I return is linked to prayer. Because prayer is an act of faith. When the churches stop praying, guess what? If Jesus comes back, you will not find faith on earth. And the key thing there is the court system is given as an image of how prayers are answered. So let me just give you three examples of a Christian who is attending a prayer meeting, okay? And he's Thinking in terms of court procedure, okay, to explain his request for prayer. So in the first example, 
Um, you tell your mate that you need something. Let's say, I don't know, you need some money to pay a debt. And you tell your mate you're going to go to court to get that money. We're talking about a prayer meeting now. And the prayer meeting is what? Once a month in our church, okay? So you say, right, I'm going to court to get my money. And I got good news. The judge is my dad. My brother is going to advise him. I've been given my own counselor to give me the words to speak. There's an accuser there, but guess what? He's going to be sidelined. And your mate says, wow, you are bound to get that request. Tell you what, let's meet up for coffee on the Thursday and we'll discuss how it went. And the Thursday comes and you have a cup of coffee and your mate asks you, how did it go? Did you get your request? And you say, no, no, I didn't get it. Why? Oh, I didn't go. What? You didn't go? No, there was a repeat of Game of Thrones on the TV and I just didn't feel I could attend. If you don't get go to a prayer meeting, you will not get your prayer request answered. It's as simple as that. Second example, guess what? You go to court, you go to the prayer meeting, but you don't speak. You don't say anything. Look, God knows when you're praying a prayer in your head, okay? But that really has no power to change anything. You have to verbalize prayers. You've got to speak it out loud. It was by a verbal word that the universe was brought into being. Lazarus was raised from the dead by a verbal word from Jesus. People were healed by the word of Christ. Okay, He didn't just think things in his head. And the reason why you have to speak out prayers, two reasons. One, if I don't hear your prayer, I can't say amen. And you need somebody to back you up in your prayers. Remember, where two or three are gathered together. When I say amen, guess what? I'm saying, so let it be. That's confirmation of the word that you've asked. Just keep it in your head. I can't say anything and nobody else can help you. If you go to a court, a real court, and you stand in the dock as a witness, as a plaintiff, and you don't speak, you will not get your judgment. You've got to speak out loud. It really is as simple as that. And that explains an interesting verse. Uh, James chapter 3 verse 14 talks about sick people, how they should call upon the elders of the church to anoint them with oil if they're ill. And this is something we're, we're looking at this in home group this Wednesday actually. This is something that the Pentecostal and the evangelical churches have got so wrong. And weirdly the Catholics and the Anglicans and the Orthodox have got so right, okay? You know, we've done it here, we've done it in all the churches I've been in. The sick person comes out the front of the church and he's anointed with oil and prayed for. But the verse is quite clear. The sick person calls upon the elders of the church because the sick person is too sick to go to the church. So therefore, the prayer meeting has to come to him or her, okay? The Catholics used to call it extreme unction. It's prayer for the terminally ill. It's for the people who are close to death or have a terminal illness. And it's about actually allowing them both to be healed and if need be to be raised up on the last day. If you can't get to a prayer meeting, guess what? No substitute will do. You can't ask another Christian to pray on your behalf. You're the plaintiff. You're the one who has to speak. It's different for non-Christians. These courts exist only for the sons of God, okay? If you're a non-Christian, you can ask a Christian to go and represent you in that court and make a prayer request. But if you're a Christian, you're a priest, you've got to speak on your own behalf. It really is as simple as that. After all, in a real court setting, if you can't go to court because you're sick, do you know what they do? They adjourn. They'll wait six months until you're better. And if somebody goes and speaks on your behalf, unless you're learning disabled, guess what? They won't accept that testimony. And it's the same with God. You're the priest. You're the one who has to make the request. Third example, you go to court 
It's the prayer meeting. You pray. But guess what? Your prayer isn't answered. Why? Because you didn't give a convincing argument. And this is perhaps the most important point. You've got to give God a convincing argument as to why your need should be met. In the Old Testament, Abraham wanted Lot to be saved from Sodom. God didn't really want to save Lot, but Abraham's argument was really good. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He's arguing on the basis of the nature of God. When God wanted to wipe out the Hebrews because they were really upsetting him in the desert, he said to Moses, I will make a new people from you. And Moses said, will people say that the arm of God was too short to save his people? He argued on the basis of how people would actually have an attitude towards God if he failed to save his people who he'd taken out of Egypt. When the Canaanite woman came to Jesus and asked him to heal her daughter, he was very insulting to her. He said to her, since when have dogs eaten at the master's table? Seems like a harsh word, but you've got to understand, the Canaanites, the Samaritans, the Philistines, the Palestinians, call them what you will, they denied everything that the prophets had said about the Messiah. They denied the preeminence of the Jewish people. They denied the preeminence of Jerusalem. So they were not respecting Jesus Christ in the first place. But she answers with a wise word. She says, even the dogs can eat the crumbs from the master's table. She humbles herself and she shows respect. And as a result, she gets her prayer answered. You can argue on the basis of God's nature. You can argue on the basis of his reputation. But the best example of all is the one given by Jesus Christ himself. You ask Jesus in the name of Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 12 to 15 says this. I tell you that whoever believes in me will do the same things I have done, and they will do even greater things, because I am going to the Father, and anything you ask in my name I will do for you, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We ask Jesus in the name of Jesus. He is the advocate. He is the one who speaks to the Father, who can make things happen. Of course, sometimes, even if we follow the right procedure, even if we got to give a good argument, even if we do all of that, sometimes our prayers aren't answered. David prayed and fasted and pulled his hair and ripped his clothes that the child that was in his future wife's belly would live. But guess what? God allowed the child to die. Why? Because David had murdered her faithful husband and he'd taken her wife and he'd impregnated her with a child. You know, sometimes we do things and there are consequences. There are consequences that can't be avoided. You commit an offence, guess what? You're going to have to go to prison or you're going to have to go to court. That's unavoidable. Sometimes the things we do, the sins we commit, guess what? It's our children that get hurt more than we do. Those things just cannot be avoided. Sometimes, do you know what? If we pray for something and God knows it'll harm us, he won't give it to us. You know, if you're in debt and you're praying that God will give you money to overcome that debt, well, what kind of a person are you? Are you good with money? Or are you a bit of a spendthrift? You know what? Rich people can afford to be a bit loose with the cash. But the poorer you are, the more astute you have to be with money. And if you're the kind of person that wastes money, God is not going to answer a prayer that's based on cash. Why? He's not going to throw good money after bad. He knows that the problem isn't actually your poverty. The problem is your inability to use the little cash that you have. Sometimes, Scripture's quite clear. 
God will always meet our needs. But do you know what? He never meets our wants. We're the ones who are expected to do that. You want a Ferrari? Guess what? That's a want. That's not a need. You're the one who's going to have to make that want happen. You're going to have to earn enough money, pay off your debts, pay off your mortgage, save up your money, and then buy that Ferrari California. But you know what? If you need a car to start a new job or to get to work, I believe God will provide you with a second-hand rusty Ford Fiesta. Because all you need is just something to get you back and forward to work. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says this, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You've got to distinguish between needs and wants. I mean, I suspect all of us after this meeting will have a meal. I don't know if anybody here is homeless, but I suspect we've all got a roof over our heads. It might not be a house we own, it might be one we rent, but still we've got a roof over our heads. Everybody has a need for and a right to have a job, to earn their own money. Every child that we have has a right to have a good education. But at the end of the day, most of our needs are met. When we meet for prayer, the truth is we should really be praying for the needs of other people. Think of the church in Syria. Think of what's happening in Africa. Think of some of the things that are happening in this nation. You know, there are needs that need to be met. And the wonderful thing about the church... The thing that we can do that nobody else can do, we can get answers to prayer because we exist within a covenant that is still strong and still holds God to account. And people of other faiths do not have access to that. So we can make a difference, a big difference in the world. Sometimes God will not give us a good thing if he can give us a better thing. Classic example of that was my wife, Jen. They amalgamated two schools in Carmarthenshire which meant that they only wanted one head of department in the new school. So guess what? We put in so much prayer, you wouldn't believe it. And Jen did so much work so that she could get that job. And guess what happened? She didn't get it. And the reason she didn't get it was because the person who was making the choice was the headmaster of the other school. So everybody in his school got the jobs, and everybody in the other school didn't get the jobs. But you know what? Because we're a people of faith, we knew that this was the will of God, and that things would somehow work out to her benefit. And what happened? The job was a nightmare, thanks to changes that the Welsh Assembly had made to the curriculum. And then, suddenly out of the blue, they offered early retirement. So now Jen is able to work two days a fortnight, and she's got a pension, and she's happy, and she's looking healthy. And I'm pretty certain if she'd carried on working since she was 60, she would have died. The job would have killed her. You see, God could see the future. God knew what was happening, and we didn't. He won't give you a good thing if he can give you something better. And also, sometimes God protects us by refusing to answer our prayers. That happened to me many years ago. I went for a job, didn't get it. I was eminently qualified. It was the job I wanted. The person who was selecting didn't choose me. She chose somebody else. And then six years later, what happens? She and that other person were arrested for defrauding a charity. And if I'd got that job, guess what? In some way, I would have been implicated. And God could see that happening. And he didn't want his son going to prison for the wrong reason, okay? So what did he do? He put his hand down and he said no. And that opened a door to something else that was much better. Sometimes we don't get our prayers answered because of a lack of persistence. Again, we assume that if we just ask It'll happen. It don't work like that. The example of the judge shows that persistence is important. Jesus talks about a persistent friend in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. 
Why does God want us to be persistent in prayer? I think there's two reasons. One, he wants to know whether we really want it. If you're praying for a want, you'll just ask a couple of times and then you'll leave it. If you're praying for the life of your child, you will pray every moment that God gives you. You will not give up. You will do whatever you need to do. And I think there's also another reason. Sometimes adult kids will only visit their parents when they need something. It's not the best way to maintain a relationship, but all the same, mum and dad get to see the bairns. Well, guess what? Sometimes the only way God is going to get to see you is if he denies you things. Because then you might come knocking on his door and seeking his attention, okay? It's not the best way to establish a relationship. But still, if that's the only way God can do it, that's the way he'll do it. He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And public prayer is the way in which we meet personal needs and we also meet other people's needs. When it comes to personal prayer, that's about asking God to change me. It's a very, very different process. And the example, the best example, was given by Jesus Christ himself. Let me read you out these quotes. After Jesus said goodbye to the people, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. It was late and he was there alone. Matthew fourteen twenty three. The next morning, Jesus woke up early. He left the house while it was dark and went to a place where he could be alone and pray. Mark one thirty five. After he said goodbye to them, he went up into the hills to pray. Mark 6.46. Jesus often went to isolated places to be alone so that he could pray. Luke 5.16. A few days later, Jesus went to a mountain to pray. He stayed there all night praying to God. Luke 6.12. About eight days after this, Jesus said these things. He took Peter, John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. Luke 9.28. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray. Luke 22.41. It's interesting, the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. But actually, depending on what translation you use, the other equally shortest verse in the Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which simply says, pray constantly. Jesus gave us an example of personal prayer, that we might follow his path and do as he did. With regard to personal prayer, he said this, this is the way to do it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door. Then pray to your father who is in that private place. He can see what is done in private and he will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the pagans. They say the same things again and again. They think that if they pray enough, their God will hear them. Do not be like them. This is as personal as it gets. It's just you and your father. You've closed the door to your bedroom. You're on your knees. You're closing your eyes. Okay? It's boring to begin with. But you know what? Given time as a discipline, it becomes blissful. You think back. If your father was a good man, if your father has passed, aren't some of those precious times in your life, weren't they when you were with him? Sitting in the car going somewhere, going for a walk, sitting in the house talking? Precious moments for both of you. Your heavenly father wants that with you. He wants to establish that relationship with you. But it takes two to tango. And you've got to put aside time for that personal prayer. You might ask for things. You might have needs. But you know what? It's not primarily about that. It's about being changed by his presence. In that secret place, he will meet you. Personal prayer creates inner strength, provides power over temptation, and it can bring revelation. And I wasn't sure that I should mention this because this is something I've only ever told one other person and I've never certainly said it in public. 
But uh, maybe because this preaches at short notice, maybe that's why I'm going to do it. Um, back in 1991, when I was in a church in Swansea, uh, I went to the elders of the church and I asked, uh, can I organize a, an all-night prayer meeting? And they were good. They said, fine. They had a property in Havard that I could use. And so once a month, for two years, I organized an all-night prayer meeting for the church. And we had about 200 people in the church. And to be fair to them, about 50 people came every time. And we prayed from nine on a Friday night until six in the morning. And uh, I'd allocate one person to pray for each hour. We'd pray for 50 minutes, actually, and then have a cup of tea for 10 minutes and a chat. And we did that for two years. And the last prayer meeting was December 93. And I remember after it was all over, friends came up to me and said, well, what was the point of that? Was NB saved? I said, I don't think so. Was NB healed? No, I don't think so. Well, what was the point of doing it? And I said, well, prayer is its own point. It's its own purpose. It's an act of faith. I don't know what the consequences will be, but guess what? For two years, we were obedient as a church. And then this happened. This is my diary entry from the 6th of January, 1994. One of the most powerfully visual dreams I've ever had last night. I woke up at two and couldn't get back to sleep. Came downstairs and prayed for a while before falling asleep on the living room floor. Then the dream came. I was standing on the ground when above me the grey clouds opened. They opened so that there was a path or canyon like a rift between the two. High in the sky stood an angel in the sun. In my right hand I had a silver sword and I flew up between and above the clouds towards him. I challenged him, asking him if he was a servant of Almighty God. In his hand he too held a sword which he raised. And as I approached him so I shouted out, Receive the power of the word of God. And with that, light rose up his sword and leapt like electricity to mine. It was so realistic, I became lucid in a dream and woke myself up. Living room clock stopped still for one hour exactly, yet at two in the morning it was the same time as all the other clocks. It's almost as if the angel's hand reached out and touched it. That clock never worked again. The mechanism somehow, it was an electric clock, had fused. Do you know what? When I woke up that morning, I knew everything had changed. That wasn't my unconscious, okay? This was a genuine, angelic encounter with God. And it had happened, I believe, because we'd spent two years praying, once a month, all night. And I rushed to the elders of the church, and I said, guys, I've got to preach. And I'd been asking to preach for two years, and they'd been saying no. And they said, no. And I said, no, no you don't understand. This is different. Something has happened. And they said, no. And they said no. And they said no for two years. And we left the church. And we came to Ammonford. And we were in another church. And for ten years I asked to preach. I said, I've got to preach. God has given me a word. I've had an angelic encounter. This is not normal. I need to preach. And they said no. And they said no for ten years. Fourteen years passed. I'm sitting in my garden of the house talking to Phil Morgan. And Phil says to me, what's your gift? I said, "Uh, teaching and preaching. He said, would you like to preach? And I said, okay. And so 14 years after this event, on the 10th of December, 2008, I was at last able to preach. And the word I preached was the word I prepared on the morning of the 6th of January, 1994, before going to work. And it was a word on the fire of God. This is my 79th preach in ABC. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for the opportunity to preach the word of God in this church. And I am so sad that I live in a country where for 14 years everybody said no, okay? Now, 
I don't know what you think, and I really do not care what you think of my preaching, but I know it is coming straight from God, okay? It just happens. And I don't know why he did this, but he did. But when I was a teenager, I prayed for the gift of prophecy, and I believe he's made my preaching prophetic. Do you know what? You've got gifts. There are gifts of miracles here, and there are gifts of healing, and administration, and teaching, and you name it, okay? But those gifts will only be accessed through prayer. It's not going to come through anything else, okay? When you show yourself faithful in public prayer, in personal prayer, guess what? Dad gets close to you. And Dad wants to get you the spiritual equivalent of a PS4. And you know what? If you ask him in the right way and you give a good enough reason, he will give it to you. And the transformation that would occur in this church and every other church, if we just got hold of this teaching, would be enormous. Because we are the only people who can pray to God and get answers to prayer. And that's the key to transforming ourselves and transforming our churches. Let me just finish with this. When I pray, I argue with God. I express my doubts. I share my lack of understanding. I confess my sins. I call myself an idiot a lot. I question his intentions. I remind him of his promises and I praise him and I exalt him. I give testimony about who he is and what he has done. And I quote back the Bible to him. Your book says, The discipline of personal prayer will change your character, change the way you think and feel. It will make you more rounded as a person. It will weaken your sense of self-importance and humble your pride. It will stop you thinking about yourself and start you thinking about him. And you will start to see him in all things, in the landscape in situations, in people. And that builds faith that God is everywhere. Personal prayer brings change and change brings revelation, a spiritual insight into situations. And if you pray long enough, maybe God will unlock in you the supernatural gifts, things like healings, things like miracles. Scripture says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. The unspiritual person does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him because they can only be discerned by spiritual people. The spiritual person can judge all things, but he himself can only be judged by no one. For as scripture says, who can know the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we are those who have been given the mind of Christ. And that's really the key. The path of prayer is the way in which you attain the mind of Christ. And once you've got that, it will absolutely transform your life. Because you won't be thinking about things in a natural way. You'll be thinking about things in a supernatural way. And whatever problems and whatever situations and whatever troubles you have, you'll be able to see through them. You'll be able to see the hand of God in things. Because Jesus Christ could do that. He could face his torture and crucifixion and say, Now has come the hour for the Father to glorify the Son. Okay? That is a spiritual prophetic insight into a situation. And that's what we need. That's what our little church needs. And given what happened last week, that's what our country needs. And only the church, at the end of the day, only the church can save this nation. Amen. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.